Welcome to The Man for Texas. Episode 5, The Die is Cast. I'm Brandon Seal. Unlike in 1813, in 1832, Tejano Federalists, like José Francisco Ruiz, were on the right side of history. By December 1832, Santa Ana's man was wearing the presidential sash. A spirit of hope prevailed. And yet, the pendulum of Mexican politics continued to swing wildly. A series of radical Federalist measures provoked a centralist backlash, and even Santa Ana, who was elected president as an avowed Federalist, put his thumb on the scale in 1835, now in favor of the Centralists. In April 1835, José Antonio Navarro received the surprising news that he had been appointed a senator of the Mexican Republic. It was an incredible honor, but it came at the tail end of a personally and politically traumatic year. A cholera epidemic the year prior had carried away something like one-third of the extended Navarro Ruiz Beramendi clan, including the then-governor of Coahuila y Texas, San Antonian Juan Martín de Beramendi. Five governors had rotated through the governor's palace since then, a sign of the instability of the times, and there were rumors that Santa Ana was about to appoint a sixth one. Fed up with the politics of the moment, young Juan Seguin led a force of 100 bare volunteers to Coahuila to defend the Federalist state government. But Jose Antonio Navarro's brother, Jose Ángel Navarro, the same Ángel Navarro who had been thrown out of the Royalist Army in 1813, had been ordered by Santa Ana's government to recall Seguin's expeditionary force. Ángel Navarro sandbagged, but eventually felt compelled to comply. Some of the militia came back to Texas, but Seguin and a few dozen of his most committed Federalist followers didn't. In light of this turmoil, José Antonio suspected that his appointment to the Senate was more symbolic than substantive, an attempt to use Navarro and his Federalist bona fides as window dressing for the increasingly uncompromising centralist who had taken over the reins of government. And so he turned, in his moment of uncertainty, to his uncle, José Francisco Ruiz, the man who had most centrally lived the Texas political turmoil of the last half century, the man who had served on the counter-revolutionary junta that put down Texas's first abortive attempt at independence in 1811, then became the highest-ranking surviving Tejano of Texas's first declared republic in 1813, the man who had brought peace to the Texas Indian frontier, and the highest-ranking Tejano in the Mexican army in 1832 when he risked his career and his reputation to support Santa Ana the Federalist. And in this instance, Ruiz didn't mince words when Navarro asked his advice. Quote, the die is cast and in a few months will begin the revolution that will forever separate Texas from the Republic of Mexico. I feel a lump in my throat when I say this. I spent the flower of my life and freely shed my blood for the independence of Mexico, and I'd willingly do so again, even though I'm now old, could I see any evidence that unfortunate Mexico was capable of governing herself or upholding the honor of her flag and her nationality. But I've lost all hope of remedy and see nothing in the future but her inevitable ruin and degradation. I have military honors, you know it well, and I receive a pension from the government of Mexico. I'll lose it all rather than go to Mexico and unite myself to the ranks of that oppressive army. Do not go to the Senate of Mexico, for you will only go to assist in quenching the dying embers of Mexican liberty. Let us rather stay in Texas and throw in our lot with our native state, which can never be worse than now. This is all I have to say. End quote. I can't help but contrast Jose Francisco Ruiz's letter here with another famous letter that would be written a few months later from the besieged Alamo by a 
bet-dodging, rabble-rousing 27-year-old promising victory or death. I guess it's a mark of my middle age that 52-year-old Ruiz's words hit me harder now than William B. Travis's do. Because Ruiz knew firsthand how costly revolution could be. He had resisted throwing in his lot with the revolutionaries of 1812 and 1813, even as he felt a clear ideological sympathy with them. Eventually, he followed his heart, and it led him to the disaster at Medina, the deaths of maybe one-third of his fellow Tejanos, the rape of his beloved bear, and a decade of exile. A decade away from his children, from his wife, from his home. There was, of course, another factor for men like Ruiz and Navarro to consider in 1835. Tejanos Long minorities within the geography of Indian-dominated Texas were now minorities even within the polity of Texas. By a factor of 5 or 10 to 1, Anglo immigrants now wildly outnumbered Tejanos. In 1835, in fact, there were probably more enslaved persons belonging to Anglos in Texas than there were Tejanos in the entire department. Ruiz had been among the strongest proponents of Anglo immigration even as he had also been the military officer charged with stemming the tide of illegal Anglo-immigration that had predominated for much of the last five years. He had to wonder, what role would minority Tejanos, even elites like himself, play in an Anglo-dominated Texas? In 1835-36, the um, Texas Revolution posed some pretty significant dilemmas to Tejanos. They find the the promises of this republic suspended, right? They, they, They find a centralist leader suspending their constitution. At the same time, they find themselves as a minority, uh, a racial minority in their own land. Tejanos were used to being minorities in their own state, and they were by no means race blind. And Tejanos, like Ruiz, actually had lived briefly in the United States and so had some experience with the Anglo-American caste system, for lack of a better word. It was different in significant ways from the Spanish caste system that they had grown up in. The Spanish utilized a, a casta system, which is kind of a racial, a rigid racial, racial hierarchy in their society uh, with peninsular Spanish at the top and uh, Indians and Africans at the bottom. But on the Texas frontier, that system kind of broke down just out of necessity. And so Ruiz was, he grew up in a multi-ethnic society where they were all living in close proximity and all living in a, in a local society that was much more fluid. Classic example that we highlight in the book is, is Ruiz's son-in-law, Blas Herrera, right? His grandfather shows up uh, and the first record of him, a sacramental record of him indicates that he's a, a lovo, which under the Casa system would have been uh, someone of part African and part Indian background. Uh, but his sons, who politically uh, become uh, alcaldes of, of the various missions, uh, eventually become Españoles or Spaniards. It just shows you that someone of mixed background can elevate due to their you know, political positions. And so that's very important because when we talk about Reese's later career, uh, especially during the Texas Revolution, I think a lot of scholars come from an American background where there's more of a racial binary, right? There's white and non-white. Or there's, you know, white and African, and they struggle to figure out where Tejanos fit. But this wasn't the pressing issue of the moment by January of 1836. The most pressing issue was Santa Ana's army rapidly descending on San Antonio. And it reminded San Antonio Tejanos of the last time that Santa Ana had visited. 
as a young royalist first lieutenant in the army of General Arredondo in 1813. It's also important to understand that the Tejanos in 1835 and 36, those that are at that point in leadership positions, such as Ruiz in their 30s and 40s and 50s, were young people in the uprising in 1813. And they experienced in a very personal way what it meant for a, a tyrannical government to come in and reestablish order. Uh, they experienced the horrors of the Quinta and saw their mothers and aunts and sisters raped and, and forced to, to serve the, the, the occupying army. They saw the confiscation of property, the suspension of, of rights, and the long period of, that it was required to recover from that. And I, I would argue that it was never fully recovered from. So I think a lot of it has to do with San Antonio's unique experience following the Battle of Medina. One of the reasons why uh, a study of Reese is so important is to understand how or why the Tejanos in San Antonio supported the Texas uh, uprising. Unlike in 1813, unlike in 1832 even, there was very little hesitation from Jose Francisco Ruiz in 1835. When the residents of Gonzalez refused to give up their cannon, and when his old friend Stephen F. Austin began marching with an army of Anglo volunteers to meet up with Juan Seguin and 150 or so Tejano Rangers in San Antonio, Ruiz threw himself into the cause. 52 years old and still suffering from whatever malady had forced his retirement from the military just a few years before, Ruiz was too old to carry a rifle. But he had more valuable skills, the unglamorous kind of skills that make or break armies. He became a sort of unofficial first quartermaster for the Texas troops now surrounding Bejar. Over the next few months, he reached into his own pocket and contributed something like $2,000 in money, horses, and supplies to the Texas revolutionary cause. Quartermaster was, incidentally, the first role he had ever held as a young army officer, a role he had filled throughout the first year of the War of Mexican Independence. Indeed, there was something familiar feeling about the whole pattern of events in 1835-36. When the Revolutionary Army of Texas defeated General Cos and drove all government troops out of Texas, it kind of felt like March of 1813, when the Republican Army of the North had done the same to the last Spanish forces in Texas. And just as in 1813, victory on the battlefield called for leadership in the stateroom. In January 1836, a call went out across Texas for each community to elect delegates to a convention to be held at a place called Washington on the Brazos. In different times, they would have called this a junta, but this junta was populated almost exclusively by Texans who called themselves, and who were indeed called by most Mexicans as well, colonists. Anglo-Americans knew how the political history of colonies ended, and convening the meeting at a place called Washington on the Brazos all but predetermined that the convention would declare the independence of Texas from Mexico. Even Ruiz understood this, as he and his nephew, José Antonio Navarro, traveled east from San Antonio to join the convention, the only two delegates to the convention to have been born in Texas. Soon after it was convened, the convention at Washington on the Brazos elected Sam Houston commander-in-chief of the Texas Army. And I think this is telling. Houston's first task wasn't marching to the Rio Grande or shoring up the Alamo or even raising troops within Anglo-East Texas. He left that to other people. Anglo-Texans' most pressing concern in early 1836 was that by declaring themselves independent, they would lose the protection of the Mexican military against Texas Indians, 
who at 50,000 or more still constituted the vast majority of the province. Sam Houston accordingly spent the first months of his role as commander-in-chief on a peace mission to East Texas Indians to prevent them from rising up and doing the Mexican army's job for them. And it raises the question, how would 1836 have played out differently if Ruiz had not been on board with the revolutionary movement? If perhaps he had taken up a position in the Mexican army and rallied his old Indian allies to attack the revolting Anglos. Actually, we saw a small version of this in the all-Anglo-Fredonian rebellion of 1826. The movement lasted barely a month and was put down swiftly by a Mexican army-led alliance of East Texas Indians, Tejanos, and even settled Anglos, and in which Ruiz played a critical role. Or what if Ruiz had just sat stubbornly and stone-faced on the sidelines in 1836? What message would that have sent to the old Anglos, like Austin and Bowie, or even to young Tejanos, like his nephew Blas Herrera or Juan Seguin? I'd go so far as to say that men like Stephen F. Austin and Jim Bowie, both closely linked to the Ruiz Navarro Veramendi clan, would not have declared themselves so boldly for independence had they not known that Ruiz was on their side. And anyway, Ruiz didn't sit on the sideline. He wouldn't remain neutral, and he wouldn't let his family either. He is the second person to sign the Declaration of Independence. There's this great oral tradition of Navarro's moment of hesitation, and a lot of historians have debated whether it occurred or not. Uh, But the story goes that Navarro hesitated uh, due to the gravity of the consequences of signing the Declaration. I mean, unlike many of the Anglos who are recent arrivals in Texas, you know, the Tejanos are. They have their lands, they have their, their you know, multi-generations here, and there's nowhere to flee. And so uh, the story goes that Navarro hesitated and that Reese stood up, took his hand and kind of calmed him and walked him over to the table and, uh, and Navarro signed. Ten days later, of course, the news of the disaster at the Alamo would reach the men at Washington and the Brazos. Four days after that, the entire convention, including Ruiz and Navarro, was in flight. And three days after that, Ruiz would learn the news that his son had been appointed mayor of San Antonio by Santa Ana. Was it an honor? Or was he being held hostage? Was another La Quinta in store for San Antonio's women? April of 1836 found Ruiz once again, as in 1813, in Natchitoches, Louisiana. But this time, something felt different. On the next episode, The Man for Texas. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Art Martinez de Vara for joining us on this episode. And go check out his book about Jose Francisco Ruiz called Tejano Patriot. You should also go buy the audiobook read by me under the same name, Tejano Patriot, and available wherever you buy your audiobooks. For more information about Art and his projects, go check out artmartinezdevara.com. For more information on my projects and past podcasts, you can go to brandonseal.com.